Welcome to Season 2 of Conscious Conversations, where we aim to inspire deep and meaningful interactions that grow into a community of practice that is committed to healing, resilience and expansion. In this season, our focus is on Africa, the fountain of humanity, the Great Mother Africa, a land research is increasingly confirming to be home of the first humans to evolve. Research also confirms that early humans migrated out of Africa into Asia about 2 million years ago and into Europe about 1.5 million years ago. The long and short of it, Africa is where it started. In this season's Conscious Conversations, we speak with spiritual teachers and thought leaders about the ways in which we can unearth the wisdom of the old that calls us back to listen, learn, remember, restore and heal. I am Mabato Monzi. Welcome. The African continent is rich with diverse cultures, indigenous knowledge systems and technologies. Our culture involves our social behavior and norms, our languages, knowledge, beliefs, traditions, arts, capacities and habits. Over decades we have seen the deliberate alienation and marginalization of African cultural values and traditions by the design of colonialism and apartheid, which have resulted in the misrepresentation and disorientation of some of the most fundamental aspects of our African culture. In an era of rapidly changing technologies, digital solutions become critical for the application of holistic and knowledge-based approaches to societal problems. In this conversation, we speak to Russell Longwani in an effort to identify the key touch points we can engage with in reclaiming and restoring our history and cultural heritage, finding ways to expand our rich and digital presence, preserving Africa's rich cultural heritage. Russell Longwani is a cultural produ producer based in Cape Town in Durban, South Africa, his work is located at the intersection of heritage, modernity, and culture and tradition, as they apply to the black life on the continent and the diaspora. His said practice includes cultural research, film, creative producing, design theory, curatorship, writing, and performance, often taking the form of installation. He has curated exhibitions and art platforms locally and abroad. His artistic work has shown extensively across Europe and Africa. His experimental film, Ifu Elimnyama, The Dark Cloud, received the jury prize in 2019 of the Shajar Film Platform. He has published through academic and art journals on design, artistic practice and urbanity. As a consultant, he works with cultural institutions and government departments who are concerned with providing meaningful support to creative ecologies. As part of his interest, he has served on boards of many organizations in the sector. Klongwani has also contributed to various panels and symposia on curating and urbanity. 
He is currently pursuing a Master's of Philosophy in Southern Urbanism at the African Center for Cities at the University of Cape Town. Thank you so much, Russell, for being with me this morning. How are you? Doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you. Um, I'm landing. I'm landing. I've just arrived a few days ago in Cape Town and trying to familiarize myself with the environment um, and all the energies that surround this place. So all around, I'm good. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that and good luck on your uh, academic journey. I hope it's fulfilling and it helps you contribute, um, you know, to the things you're passionate about and hopefully bring some long lasting change in, in the sector. Thank you. Thank you. I'll need all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I've just completed my master's uh, report and submitted it. So I know how hectic it, it oh, gets. My. Yeah. Well so, done. Congrats. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, please share with us a little bit about yourself and what inspires you and your work. Yeah. I, uh, I was, I was born. I was born in in Durban. My family is from a place called Greytown, otherwise known as Msinga. My grandmother was the first to come to the city. And so my mother, as well as myself, are kind of are subjects of, of the city. Um, I mean, I, my, my work is, is very closely tied to who I am. It's, it's difficult to separate the two, but I'm also one of those artists who, who try not to, to be too serious about, about life, you know? Um, so, I mean, as I often say, it's not, it's not open heart surgery, you know? Uh, but at mm. the same time, it, 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 it deals with who I am and the things that I'm trying to understand about myself in relation to the globe. Um, so I guess a simpler way to say this is I'm also, a learning, growing, feeling, playing individual who's trying to make sense of this thing we call life. Mm. And in the context of your profession as a cultural producer, what are these things that you're trying to understand about yourself and how you relate to the world? Um, maybe I can use a very... Like, uh, yeah. It's not an analogy. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an experience. It's an observation, perhaps. Um, as a young person, so my, my, both my grandmother and mother were domestic workers. And so I, I had a, and I, I kind of lived at the property that my mother worked at. Um, so I, I was socialized around domestic workers and garden workers mostly. And often these people would talk of home. Home as a place in, say, rural areas, not in the urban. So when someone asks, Wagepi, you know, um, and you don't tell them you're from Overport or, you know, <laughs> Blasi, mm. you wanna, you know, they want to know exactly where you're rooted. Where and you sometimes from. if you dilly dally with an answer, they'd say, Kabayaki you know, uh, or mm. And from a very early age, I found this really interesting. And, you know, you kind of understand when you understand what they mean when they ask this question. I think later on in life, um, it, be, it, it began to kind of scratch, 
scratch me and 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 led me to ask why why are people dissatisfied with the city how are people why why are people at such a distance from the city um and this led me to to explore this question in other words to explore myself and these people that i was socialized around and so the artistic kind of endeavor kind of leads from from that trigger points um and so what are these things i'm trying to learn about myself i'm kind of was using that as like as a basis you know mm-hmm. for, for what I was, I was about to say um so I'm, on the one hand i'm trying to understand the future um i'm trying to better understand some of the reasons that make black people what and who they are and what and who mm-hmm. they are not I'm trying to understand myself in relation to to the planet to the cosmos if you will um and this often means that one has to explore narratives that have been suppressed narratives that have been distorted over time um at the same time work and contend with the narratives that are emergent narratives that are mm. of the present and leading us into the future so this is why and how i do what i do which is learning mm. about myself through an artistic process so what does being a cultural producer mean especially sure. within our context in south africa or africa so for for a while i found it difficult to call myself an artist partly because i was not making artwork i think over the past 3 4 years i've started making artwork that i can say yes something i made mm-hmm. and so the point i was at before um making artistic work was dealing with ideas primarily dealing with questions and inviting people who work in artistic practice who work in academia who are kind of scholars who are based outside a university setting you know so these are the people that I was kind of constantly in conversation with finding interesting ways to hold conversations and cross um that cross mediums or disciplines so to speak mm-hmm. and over time i've i'm i'm I, over time i've i've straddled theory to some degree practice um and and allowing for that to create to 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 manifest in some objects in something visual something tangible or something someone can listen to so a cultural producer in 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 a, in shorter terms is someone who straddles a number of roles that are mm-hmm. interdependent if not complementary so from kind of artwork or artistic practice into other dimensions that have to do with, with making and working with ideas mm. so um when we speak about culture i don't think for most people aesthetics uh, come to to mind um but i think because we we live in such a visual time um what do you think informs what people view as aesthetically appealing and um when one thinks about culture and how culture informs the kind of things we gravitate towards how do you think 
um, the suppression of African cultures has influenced how we view um, what we deem valuable, desirable, um, aspirational? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a, it's, it's a tricky one to answer. It's a, it's a difficult one to answer. I feel part of, hmm, part of the challenge is to, is to place the term heritage, tradition, and culture as three separate terms. And we found that we often use these terms interchangeably as if they mean the same thing. And so if we can agree that one is of a heritage, kind of a past, a kind of set of, you know, um, a sensibility in the world, kind of a people, um, a set of practices that are age old. And then there's tradition, which is, the performance of things that have and have always been done this way, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what we and what we do as people is work with traditions, and from those traditions we craft cultures. So the things that we mm-hmm. do on the everyday, and I think this 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 mild error of using tradition and culture as a same. And I mean, you you hear this everywhere, right? And I think part of it is is the is the is the work that I think we have to do because it helps us reframe the conversation around aesthetics, around what is appealing, what is fashionable, so to speak, you know, mm. um, and what is otherwise deemed backwards and, 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 right? Mm. So mm. due to this kind of, this disruption in our way of being and way of lives by by um, settler colonialism, there has been a there's been a remaking, there's been a rewiring, a forced one of how the black person ought to see to see themselves and see the so-called other. Mm. And I think like this kind of this, this, this slippery way that we've been using these terms is quite an indicative of this, you know, where the person of the now has been asked through media and other, other platforms to think and understand themselves in the past. And so when someone says, you are this, at some point, you start to say, yes, of course, I am this. And therefore, mm. you are supposed to act this way. And what that often means is we call you these terms, clans. I mean, these, I've, I've also gotten to a point where I do not use terms like tribe and clan and so on and so forth. So I don't think they do justice to the complexities of how we are constituted as a people. Mm. And so... This kind of conflation and this confusion does begin to warp <laughs> our our sense of, of sight or seeing because we start to to think that this thing that we've been force fed is the present, it's the current, it's the fashionable, and this thing so we talk about ourselves as the things of the past. Hmm. 
I mean, I'm, 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 I'm trying to respond to your question of, of aesthetics, the aesthetics of, of the past, which are kind of static in a way, at least we've been told, yeah? And the aesthetics mm-hmm. of the current, which are kind of like these fast, fast moving, um, and fast paced ideas and ideals, which more than anything are starving us. So here I'm talking consumerist culture. I'm talking of like, inheriting methods and practices that are not embedded in our deep histories and cosmologies, you know? Um, and so how can we appreciate these things as part of the moment, the present moment that we're living in, but somehow find a way to bring into the present, not the past as it were, Remnants of the past brought to the present as a way of fabricating and building and constructing a future. And perhaps through that process, one can start to talk about aesthetics that are injected with a sense of blackness in them. Mm. So it was a very, very long answer to a, a much shorter question. Now, I understand that, um, you know, there aren't any easy answers to some of these questions because they're so complex right and um they are interrelated with other um issues so it's not just one idea or or one solution for an entire problem because it it is so multi-faceted multi-layered and i think it would require quite a um a bit of, um, how do I call it? A lot of time actually, um, for us to dissect and, and go through the whole thing. But when it comes to aesthetics and yeah. being globally competitive, cause as sure. you said, you know, one needs to be able to be in the current times and be competitive, um, as globalization and, and all of these things. Sure. What do you think the, how we are, our culture, right? Um, how do you think it, it can help us be more globally competitive? Because what I'm sensing is that because we are not showing up as who we are, Africans, we are not able to compete with the rest of the world. It is like, for me, it's like, you know, we are trying to um adopt other people's ways of doing things and then to compete with them um and i don't think that kind of works sure sure wow yeah it's it's a massive question um no it, it's like we can't you can't beat no, what, what do frogs do? Frogs jump, right? <laughs> like you can't beat a frog and jump and jump it, you know, as a mm. human being just doesn't, you know. Mm. Um, there are things that you can learn from a frog, <laughs> you know, and integrate that into the, the human being that you are. And so I do agree with you that to compete with others on their terms, is not necessarily productive. Mm. There's a there's a there's a sense making that we need to undergo and take on that helps us understand to use the term USP. You mm. know, 
what is it that we bring to the negotiation table that no one else can? Mm. And I think that the answer to that question has to start perhaps like, you know, the history that is available to us, I think it has to go way beyond that. Because we can't mm. trust history. History is unsecure, it's insecure, it's it's precarious, it's, you know, it's 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 got all kinds of traps. Mm. So then it is available, it's there, and so we you know, we can do something with that. But I think we need to search much beyond that which is available and accessible to us in the moment right now. And this is where we start to to unveil this unique this unique nature and quality about who we are. Yeah. We are starting to see fragments of it. I mean I think that our generation were in a very different moment to the current generation. I think you have like young people now who are truly embracing who they are, they're doing all kinds, I mean, it's really, really beautiful to observe and see. And I think they have much more of an invigorated investment um, and an application into what makes who we are. And I think what, I, what I'm also starting to appreciate is into that past, into that history, they're injecting a range of new politics that we kind of mm. were not preoccupied with in our youth when we were their age. So I think there certainly is a process of people digging, not that which is past, but also that which um, is hidden in plain sight. Mm. Mm. And, and what do you think are the intersections between culture and language? I mean, I've got my own... Um, views around how language influences our culture. I was speaking to um to another guest um about education and we ended up briefly speaking about language. Oh. For example, how a simple word contextually you know kind of informs how we how we relate to certain framings. Absolutely. For example, the word mangwani, which is loosely translated as aunt in English, but it doesn't really mean aunt, right? It's not really aunt. Mangwani or khadi mamkulu represents something much bigger than just an aunt. So how does language affect culture or what are the intersections between culture and language? Uh, yeah, I'm doing quite a, quite a bit of writing and thinking about language, specifically as a way of building urban theory, you know, but I won't go down that, that, that route. And so I think the, the question kind of comes at a time when I've, when I've been thinking about the use of language. So an Indian scholar had mentioned something that, something like the material world is born from the word. Hmm. I mean, if maybe using biblical term, it says, well, at first there was the word, right? Yeah. yeah. And so there's something quite fundamental about dreaming and conjuring of futures in words and in languages that encompass you in all facets, right, of existence. And for a long time, we have been trying to build a future based on, on other languages, using other languages. Mm -hmm. 
And and I think part of part of the work is to produce neologisms, is to produce new words that are constantly shape shifting and moving with us. I think if we can't do that to language, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Um, mm. And what it means is, if we can find, if you are trying to write the future, if you're trying to craft the future, somehow there has to be a word that can describe this thing that we're trying to make. Because part of, part of inventing that word is starting to put in motion the making of that future. You know, so if I can put that aside and just kind of make like a reference that I, that like part of part of what I was I was I was thinking about and of in language, you know. So, so someone says Zulu, um, what time will you get here? You know, and someone says Ah, Gabo twelve. You know, mm. like Ah, okay, cool. I'll see you at twelve. But like Ah, Gabo twelve, <laughs> not go twelve <laughs> around mm. about. <laughs> then they rock up at one They're like oh you said you'll be here at 12 and they said no no I don't say I'll be here at 12 I said I'll be here around about 12 this this says something about our orientation and our relationship to time in the western world where there had to be some kind of structuring of the world using time as a way to conform right and kind of push forward <laughs> their agenda we haven't had a, we haven't we hadn't we haven't created a 24 hour day under a gregorian calendar right mm. there was a different orientation that we had to now it's not to discredit the western kind of construction of time you know mm. that's their stuff and it worked for them right but you see how through like this very small example of how language is used and how it postures says so much about a whole lot of other things of who we a lot of other things about who we are and how we thought of ourselves in relation to say seasons kind of lunar phases etc 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 so what are these things can we dive mm. into them we, we do however start with this thing that is language that says someone says I won't be there specifically at twelve. I'll be there roundabout. You know, so like and 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 you, if you're mm. consistent with this is a language, you see how things are very seldom like tight. They are rather loose. When someone says Gutiwa, it's like I didn't say this, but they say who's the mm. they? Mm. Who's they? <laughs> mm. <laughs> so you know, these are really interesting ways for us to think about language in ourselves. Yeah. So I love that you bring in the concept of time into this conversation. Maybe before that, I'm from Kimberley. So I grew up in Kimberley and I came to Johannesburg uh, much later on in my life. So I had not been uh, exposed to Isizulu quite a lot. So recently, um, uh, my, my gardener who is from 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 KZN um introduced me to like hardcore Zulu. So when it rains or when there's like lightning, he would say Izulu Liaduma. And I was like, what? Like, um, you know, and so I started because it just sounded 
differently. It yeah. felt different. Mm-hmm. And then I, I started, um, researching is what Izulu means. Mm-hmm. And, um, I got roped into, um, a much deeper understanding of what Izulu means um in the context of the zulu people and it was very rich um you know so that's just one example of how language can like completely shift you know how we understand things on the issue of time i like that you brought it into the conversation because there's this thing in our culture and i don't know if it's a black thing where we would speak of African time. But since my journey um, as a Sangoma, I've come to understand and value what we in our circles call glossy time. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that is just to say when the time is right and the energy flows, the elements are in alignment, it will happen, right? So now I kind of understand the concept of African time differently because most of the time it is used in a negative sort of connotation. Um, But understanding our rich connection with ancestors and the spiritual world Glossy time, um, African time means something totally different. And it's actually positive because it then also encourages us to be in the now, right? In the present and to be receptive, uh, to be um, allowing for things to happen um, and to not stand in the way because you are chasing time. Um, It's... Yeah. It's really interesting, and I mean, and I have, I also have my 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 frustrations with with that, right? Because, mm-hmm. and I totally agree with everything you've said. If if we say look at, I mean, time is a is a is an ordering tool, right? Like, it's important that you arrive here at eight and you knock off at four thirty. Here's the loan, and I give it to you for you know twelve months or whatever it is, right? Mm. So this ordering of of time, this ordering through time, um, it, you you see how it's so important and crucial for a capitalistic world. I mean, I'm not. I'm, it's I mean, this, the Gregorian calendar predates capitalism, at least uh, kind of mo- modern day capitalism, um, and 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 so it works. And I want to kind of come back to think about. Ah, yeah, right. It's connected to you talking about kind of standing in the way, in the way of things. Yeah. Mm. When one like really goes deep into, in, into, into like deep histories and past, you realize that there was a different kind of, of organization and relationship that people of this continent had with forces beyond themselves. You know, it was not a commanding of forces most of the time mm. in the way that capitalism does today, right? Kind of like mm. deep, um, accelerated mining practices and exploitation and plundering of, of, of resources of all kinds on, you know, in the oceans and, and on land. And all of this has to do with like man, the man 
kind of both in a gendered sense, but also kind of, you know, as, as, as everyone is kind of classified under man, um, mm-hmm. kind of being on top of the pecking order and kind of playing the role of God. And if you come to, to us on this place, and now that's not to say that I speak for all Africans and kind of all Africans mm. fall under this category, but they, they are, they are some, concepts or themes that are somewhat universal across the continents of how people kind of pleased entities in order to get something, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was not a matter of us commanding and being on top of of the pecking order, but it's us being in relationship somehow and forming a way of asking for things and then you come to this point where we're still asking for things mm. <laughs> um but you know it's like hey things will happen when they happen oh mm. okay yeah you just be patient you play a role they'll help it's like some people are not thinking that way it's like i want this thing to happen mm. i want to make sure that now at a high water it will happen right and mm. so you see how even in the now there are remnants of this way of waiting for things to come together so that you will receive, hopefully, mm. right? Mm. But, and, I, and I think this has, to do, this has something to do with time. You know, you play a role, mm. with time, the elements will align. Um, these people to whom you're asking for something will finally respond, but they will not respond at your own time. They'll respond mm. in their time, mm. you know? So how then do, mm. you, do you, you create this this complexity that says there are certain things that I will not force my hand upon. And there are certain things that I would need to mobilize a set of things in order for me to get them at the time that I need to get them because I'm living in this material and, and capitalistic world, you know, Mm. I'll stop. I like, I like um, a lot of the things that you're bringing into this conversation, but um, at this rate, we'll probably stay forever on this conversation. It was until I came across your short film, Ifu Elimnyama, when I started to question the idea or the notion that we don't, as African people, we don't have a language um, to communicate our ways and forms of existing, you know, some of our beliefs. I've, I'm, a, I'm generally a curious person. And through my spiritual journey, I've like been looking for the words to understand, you know, there are certain things one has been able to, 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 to say, okay, this is because this is what is happening, uh, physically, spiritually, um, maybe I'm going through a Kundalini awakening because, right. for example, they have got a language, you know, and, and like proper descriptions to say, this is what you could be feeling in your body. This is going through and so on. But when I came across your, your film, your work, I was blown away, um, you know, at your choice of words, at the language and how relevant it was um, for today's time. Can you take us through that and hopefully play us a bit of the clip? Sure, sure. Oh, at the time that the work came to be, I was reading quite a bit of theory around 
techno politics um, and techno poetics, which are all the things that have come to be as a result of technology. You know, kind of thinking beyond hardware and software and, and the implications that technology is starting to have at a very fundamental level on human beings and mm. like at a chemical level as well as at a planetary level. And and at the same time, I was I was I was kind of digging into into some of the memories that I had of Umsega, you know, and it was also my grandmother's last days, and so, you know, she would tell me stories about things that they experienced as young people in Umsega. I was like, hmm. wow, and. In kind of in in kind of futuristic technology terms, there is this thing that is called the the cyborg or the post human or and the post human. You know, these are kind of entities that are manipulated using kind of computation, um, kind of human sensibilities. You know. So it's kind of like man meets machine, so to speak. So my grandmother was kind of retelling these stories of this entity. It's called Umundu. And in the film, Umundu is the protagonist, right? And in the way that my grandmother described Umundu, it is said to be a spirit that is, that is passed on. Yeah. Um, but Axon is Borgi, you know? Mm. It exists, it exists somewhere in that realm as well. And so it appears, and a friend of hers had an encounter with the moon, you know. And mm. this, was, this was an entity that was around quite a bit to kind of hear it in, in, folklore, in folklore of the time. And so it's kind of, it has this human body, and my kunu might kind of releases sparks, like you'd see sparks through the openings, ears, um, nose, and mouth whenever it speaks. And apparently, if you look down, you kind of see like hooves of a horse, so to speak. Hmm. But apparently, at the moment that you look down, it's like you either pass out or something like this. And she says, oh, my friend from this section in Lazi, she had this thing, you know, and like, hmm. she, had a, she needed a few <laughs> days to recover. So something like, and then, you know, and I thought to myself, this is no different to the cyborg that I've been reading and this that I've been reading in, in science fiction and like futuristic work. And then I was like, so this figure has existed much longer on this continent than it has in, in the West or the North. So there's somehow there's been a futuring that's been happening on this continent for a long time. And then it's brought to us as technology. And we think, Oh wow, these people have done, no, the stuff has been happening here. You can go into other areas. Um, so the cloud, one of these other areas is the cloud, for example, right? Um, on the one hand, the significance of the cloud in, say, Guni ontology, kind of like the cloud um, as connected to rain, the goddess of fertility, and kind of the life giver, and that is being an entity that's connected to the creator and the maker, right? But we started the cloud. 
Now, in, in, in this moment, the cloud is kind of the storage device. It connects, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it, mm. it's becoming quite a, a fundamental and big feature in this world of the now, right? But we can make a connection between how we understand the cloud in a kind of technological frame and how we can understand the cloud in Guni cosmo- cosmology, right? And connect mm. that uh, with very transcendental practices. These practices, Western science cannot explain, right? Mm. Like there are things that we see and we've heard and observed. Like, uh, it's, like, n- yeah. <laughs> so the film in some way is trying to to bring an aesthetic language, a visual language, to to catch people, and I use catch quite deliberately, to catch people who would otherwise dismiss the stuff as superstition or dismiss it. Uh, it's like, oh, so if we can, if we suppose that this was true, who's to say this did not happen? Who's to say mm. that did not happen? Who's to say we didn't do that and go there? And... Mm. And you see how a film allows someone to work and kind of be introduced in this, into this fictional reality. But in that fiction, there are fragments of truth, or maybe not truth, there are fragments of, of realities. And so once you catch someone in that fictional world, you can start to say, well, but this happened, though. I may not have the evidence for it, but it happened. Like, there are people who can testify and attest. It is insane. (laughs) Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. You know, a a friend and I were were talking about this, and I was saying to him, dude, am I mad? Am I, like, mental? And, And he said to me, you know, I think there are many people that have been admitted to mental institutions because they've got the gift because they can communicate with other beings. Um, and it's not only ancestral spirits, right? There are other yes. beings yes. that can be in yes. contact with one. Yes. Yes. And yes. it is so sad that it's not easy to talk about these things because not a lot of people understand it sure. and maybe it is because we don't have the language around it um, because so much has been lost over wow. time wow. Um, with what do you call it um, migrant um, laborers, people yes. having to leave their villages, so much information, knowledge, wisdom has been lost. We no longer have the privilege of sitting at the feet of our great grandmothers and hearing them, you know, narrate their stories. Um, And so that creates a vacuum. Do you by any chance have a clip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I can bring it up quickly. Um, Okay.
You've, you've explained to us briefly what inspired you to mm. produce this. Mm. And I've also seen the visuals. Mm. I think um, they're awesome. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. As a young black woman and um, healer, I find, as I explained earlier, accessing some indigenous knowledge challenging um in the absence of knowledgeable elders um i usually go to the internet you know to try and make sense of my experiences mm. but i often struggle to to find relevant and reliable information that properly speaks to what I'm experiencing, especially within the African context, right, traditionally. So we're living in a digital time. Um, some people might argue that because of the sacredness of our um, sure. spiritual practices, that yes. these should not be out there, that we should yeah. not be digitizing wow. this information, but what does that mean um, sure. for, mm. for for younger people, mm. you know, who are trying to understand uh, what they're going through, for younger people who are trying to uh, make sense of the spiritual world in the African context, um, considering the fact that not many of us have got the privilege of saying, I'm going home. Sure. You know, where sure. there will be an elder that will sit you down and say, this is what you're going through. Mm. It's such a question, Mabato. It is such, it is such a heavy question. And, and I don't think we will find a clean answer to that, a clinical answer, you know. I, in my experience in doing this work and, and working in, in, in the area of indigenous knowledge systems, I've come across two schools of thought. There's a school of thought that says these things are far too sacred for them to be known. So let's lock them away. And after 200 years, they've been locked away and no one knows anything about it. And those who might assume themselves authority over that knowledge, they also, they're grappling on straws, you know, there's nothing coherent. But... Shucks, they've got some access to that stuff, so maybe they're right and they mislead us. Mm. And then there's another school that says, well, we have to find a way for this information to be made available somehow. What that somehow is, we might not have the answer just yet. Right? 
because so I'm of the second school that says somehow we have to find a way to put this information in to some to re- reliable hands. Now, the digital presents a really interesting problem. I don't think this problem this problem exists with and around a range of other problems that we as black folk ought to be asking about ourselves in relation to the future and the present. There are a set of practices, for example, that we still continue today. And some of these practices were handed down through colonialism. You know? Um, So that's one. The digital is asking us, how do we rethink folkloric cultures in a digitized space where the spoken language is not the primary form of communication. How do we still make this information live on this thing, much of which we do not own? We mm. do not own the infrastructure of the, of, of, of the internet. That poses another problem or question, you know? How do we build the, the kind of the custodianship? Who becomes the elder then in the digital space? who kind of lives with this knowledge and can dispense this knowledge to those who deserve it. Mm. I do not know. I really do not have the answer. Um, however, it's a question I'm invested in. It's a question that I want to be part of, of, of answering and complicating and undoing and redoing, you know? Mm. But this is thinking work for thousands of people that have to contend with this question. You know? mm. Yeah. But for many of us, some of the underpinnings that come with this knowledge inform our ways of being, uh, of existing, how we understand the world. Uh, it informs our culture, um, the way we do things. Sure. So what does the, the loss of this mean for, for our culture? And how we choose to show up. I mean, earlier on, we spoke about uh, being globally competitive. Mm. How, how do we try to be globally competitive when we cannot tap into that which sustains us as African people, which is mostly our spirituality, right? I think African people have always known that their very existence is so connected to nature. So that's number one. So the cosmos, the, the universe, the trees, the mountains, the water, our existence, um, is so connected to that. So how do we continue to form this culture? And, um, whilst we are trying to, uh, be urban or current or present in how we show up, I think our culture is also very important in in being able to show up authentically and actually offer the world something. I mean, I see this in, I think, I think of people who do this very well are Japanese people. I mean, there's a sense that, I mean, I, I think, I think, you know, part of, part of the, the UAE, you know, it's like Fridays are, you know, prayer day. Mm. And, 
And the world has, I mean, if you're doing business there, you just, it's just a reality that you have to live with, right? Mm. <laughs> you go to Japan, there's also a set of, of, of deep heritage, um, and tradition that exists that has been fused with, 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 with behaviors of the present, you know? With so business are, as usual. Yeah, mm. right? So I think there are people who've done this relatively well. And so we needn't start from scratch. And perhaps it's about kind of understanding what, what were the compromises, right? And what were, what were the stakes in the compromises? What were the losses, you know? Because I guess in some way one can say to not do this, so to do this means that we will lose this. But to not do this also means that we lose this. So which loss of the two are we happy to live with? Either way, there will be a loss, right? But which can we say, yeah, we can live with that loss, but we can't live with, with this loss, you know? Um, and so, yes, what is the risk and what is the loss of not having this information available on a, in a digital space? And what is the risk of having it on a digital space? There are losses on both sides. Which are we happy and living to, uh, and, and willing to, to, to live with, you know? And and honestly, I don't know if that question can come solely from elders. Because the work that the elders are doing to preserve this information is for the future generations. But the future generation can also be naive, right? Mm. And so there has to be some kind of d- discussion, some kind of conversation that happens that's intergenerational. You know, and this needs to be a forum, so to speak, but it's through these conversations, it's through artistic work, it's through, you know, other forms of, of, of knowledge making. Mm. Yeah. I was, um, having a conversation with a brand strategist and author who's based in Hollywood about the framing of black bodies in the media. Uh And, um, I'm just, wondering because uh, this is your your production is a rich story right so there's a lot to learn from it um why do you think it's not mainstream why do you think it's not easy for you as a producer yeah to get that on national tv why is there no curiosity around that uh, sure <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. The, the answer is twofold. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I, I, I work in a very particular way. Of, I work in a very particular kind of segment of the arts world, which is often kind of very confined to, to you know, people of, of its kind. And and I'm I'm having my frustrations with this because the stuff we're trying to do is not for each other, you know. It's to it's to inspire mm. people across across the globe. Um, but I think more kind of generally speaking, the question you're asking has to do with us playing the game on the terms of other people and not on our own terms. So yes, why aren't we seeing more material and media about ourselves in mainstream television? It's because we, our priorities are kind of driven by profit, but bottom lines at the, at the, at the expense of kind of situated knowledges about who we are and, you know, but it's, mm. but you know, our, our, our priorities are, are on the money. 
They're not on the stuff that will build us for us to make the money that then stays here, you know? Mm. So it's a really complicated one. And I think we as consumers are not invested enough in our own, you know, the people who are making decisions about what we should be engaging with as an informed populace are also letting us down to some degree at some points. As makers, there's more that we should be doing and kind of pushing our agenda more strongly. We should be a bit more imaginative how we reach and engage with people. So I think there are faults on, on, on many sides. With that said, there are glimpses of hope. You know, glimmers of mm. hope. There are people who are trying to, to push work. I mean, I think what you have now on, on video, video on demand platforms, there are way more black bodies that we're starting to see. But the road is very long and we have a very long way to go. Mm. Earlier we spoke about what we choose to value and um, you also spoke about what we are willing to lose, right? So if we had to choose, um, what is it that we are willing to, to, to lose? And for me, um, it just seems like we are prepared to lose ourselves um for for this money or how we've come to value things i think there's a inherent fundamental problem in valuing everything in money form sure absolutely um yeah and that 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 often pushes people into into corners where they're just trying to survive, just yeah, trying to get by. Sure. So you you do what sells. Yeah. Um and I think that is such a such a horrible way to to live. Uh to not be able to authentically mm. express yourself, to mm. not be able to to show up as who you are because it does not translate sure. into what pays the bills. That must be hard, especially for artists. I mean, we've seen over the years how many artists have struggled to make ends meet um, and how people end up assimilating um, because they want to live. People are tired of poverty. And so the challenges are manifold, right? Mm, mm, Absolutely. And, you know... This obsession with money is, I mean, of course, we all want to live a, a decent, a decent life, right? We all want to, we all want our material needs to be met, at least most of. And this obsession with money, and, and money is this construction, right? It's a game that was constructed by the West and the North. And then, like, you know, it's kind of corrupted us. You know, mm. um, I mean, they're also, it's, it's also corrupted them, but it's, it's corrupted us in this very strange way. Um, what we tend to do to our, to, to each other and ourselves, they do to, to, <laughs> to us, you know, to others. Mm. Um, so the pain is not self-inflicted, whereas for us, it's, it's self-inflicted. However, I think if we, if we do consider the alternative, which is value making, there were ways that we were trading and bartering, and living, you know, like there, there were these gestures, there were ways that people would 
gift and and extend, you know? And I think that's what we want, right? Like we want to mm. we want to be in harmony with each other, we want to be in harmony with ourselves and still have the things that make life comfortable, that make life enjoyable. Mm. It's about how we get to those means that I think is the problem. I yeah, it's 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 a hard one. Mm. So in light of this and in wrapping our conversation up, as a cultural producer, what would you say we need to remain relevant and to be globally competitive as people on the African continent? How does who we are affect or inform the type of culture we hype um, or the type of culture we want to embody? Sure. My answer has to do with the past and, and the future. There's a past that I refuse to to find satisfaction in or with. And, and what I mean by this is if we are told that this is our history, I will not deny that. But I want to look at, at the sides. I want to look under. I want to look over. I want to look at what happened between these moments that are not in the records. And then I want to, I want to use that as a way to, to speculate on what the future might be. So we have a people who go to the past and they dwell on the past. And I don't think that is particularly productive and useful. We cannot return to 500 years ago. It's, just, it's impractical. Yeah, so somehow we have to look at 500 years ago and say, oh, it's really amazing that we did these things and we were these people. What does those 500 years tell us about where we are now and how we get to the next 500 years? You know, and and I mm-hmm. think sometimes we are far too precious with what we call history. And what that means is, we begin to 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 think that we exist nowhere else but in the in in the past, and what I'm saying is we exist there, we exist now, and we ha- we are we are yet to exist in the future as well. So let's not go to the to history as a place of hiding. <laughs> you know? mm. Let's get there to get revitalized, so we can you know mm. soldier on. So this would be my offering, you know. Thank you so much for making time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy. Um, I think it um, really helped me put things into perspective. I hope to engage um, a bit more with you, um, you on a different platform. Maybe we'll see. Thank you. No, I'm I'm grateful for for you making the invitation to start with, and I, and I'd really like to say that. This, for me, is a much more meaningful way of engaging than being in a museum. So I'm also grateful that there are people like yourselves who are willing to to amplify the speaker. So thank you too. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. I truly hope you learned something new, felt something, and were inspired to cultivate a more conscious life. I'd love to connect with you, hear your thoughts and story. Please feel free to reach out. Our contact details can be found 
on montem.co.za. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.